welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. So we're going to talk about a couple of things this morning. The, the second session, we're going to talk about um, the afterlife, different ways people have viewed the afterlife over history, um, different views that are within Christianity, um, and maybe explore areas we might have closed ourselves off to different views or maybe um, kind of pick apart uh, areas of other views and maybe even the views we hold ourselves. Um, but I wanted to start first by talking a bit about salvation um, and all this stuff, you know, stuff I said yesterday, probably less so than today. Today's probably, I'll share a lot of different things and people might have different opinions on these things and that's okay. You're allowed to have different opinions, and you'll probably hear people sitting in here sharing with you that would have different views on some of these things as well. Um, but the first uh, session, I want to talk about salvation. What does it look like? Um, because I think a lot of the church have some very um, ingrained views. Uh, I would say the majority of evangelical Christianity has a very ingrained view on what does it look like to get saved. Um, and the message might be something along the lines of God is a holy and just God but he also loves us but these two are almost at odds in one way you know so he loves you but he's really just so he's got to be angry with you if you're not doing the right things Um, and so God is left in this kind of place of like well I'm really angry with these guys that are sinful much like our picture of Noah and the flood or something, you know, it's like you're, you're sinning and I really would love to just wipe you all out, but I'm loving as well. And so I probably shouldn't. Um, and so what he does is in this amazing act of loving and generosity and caring and, and, and just goodness is he brutally murders his own son. And that's, um, you know, the way it might not be portrayed, but that's basically what we teach, is we teach that God sends his son to die in this horrific, awful, painful death. That he, would, he pours out punishment and wrath on his son so that he doesn't have to pour out punishment and wrath on us. Um, and then we kind of go on from that and we say, well, um, the beautiful thing about that is that now if you say a certain prayer, um, you take a certain box, whatever that, that might be. Some people have a few prayers. <laughs> Some people have just one prayer, but then you have to do something afterwards. Some people just go, well, I just say the prayer, that's fine. Some people don't even have a prayer, but there's some sort of rules involved. Maybe come along to church every week, certainly become a member or tithe. Or, you know, and so there's different people that have a sort of uh, teaser point, but they would say, once you get to this point and do X, Y, or Z, now you're in and God loves you and he's gracious towards you and you're in his family and you're a child of God's, but... The people that don't do those things, not so much. He's still pretty mad at them. He's still, they're going to face some sort of punishment and wrath because he's a just God. Um, And so I want to try and deconstruct some of that stuff and just present there are other options. There are other ways to view um, some of these uh, themes and motifs of the cross and God and how he views sin and how he views us. and we'll probably in the next session then get to, and is there different ways to view the afterlife? What does heaven look like? What does hell look like? Um, but first, let's talk about this concept of God being love, but just. I think it's really interesting to me that 
we like I, I do it all the time, right? So I'll preach messages, you know, and, and talk about God loves you. It's all about your His love. If you just rest in His love, you know, you'll walk in love. You'll walk. You'll love your neighbor. You'll love yourself. You'll love God. Like yesterday, I teach that a lot in a lot of different places, and you will not. You couldn't imagine how many people come up to me and go, Phil, it's a great message. God is love. But he's also just. As if justice isn't loving. As if justice means that God's got to put a seatbelt on his love. You know, maybe like keep it reined back a bit. It's, it's like that. But he's also just is one of the most bizarre and terrifying phrases to me. Because what it suggests is we have created a God whose justice isn't really loving. His justice is something else. Um, And a lot of that is rooted in a worldly form of justice. What is justice to us? Um, I can give you a simple example. Um, If you look at the prison system in the majority of the the world, um, when someone does something wrong, what happens to them? We put them in prison. If they're really bad and the country or state allows it, we kill them. Right? I mean, there's, there's different levels of extremities. Maybe some people only have to pay a fine. But the purpose of justice, of the justice system, is to punish that person. That's the real core heart of it, is when you do something wrong, you're going to get punished. Because we think punishment will deter other people from doing something wrong. And we think somehow you being punished will stop you doing it again. Um, but punishment is at the core of that justice system. And what's really interesting is it's been proven again and again and again that it doesn't work. It doesn't deter people. If people want to do something wrong, they'll do it. And it doesn't stop people doing it again. Like, in fact, if you look at the countries that have the more severe um, punishments, so America is one of the best examples of this in the world, they have the, one of the highest repeat offending rates in the world. Like, if you are punished for a crime in America, there's, I think it's like in the 80s percent chance that you'll come out of the prison and do it again or another crime again and so justice in the world is often about punishment another element of it as well is it's about casting you out it's about scapegoating you it's about saying you're a murderer and we're not murderers so you are going to be put away so we can be safe so that you can be punished so there's an element of we want to be safe we want to be uh healthy whole whatever it is, secure, and we want you, who's a danger, who's liable, whatever, to be cast away, to be put out, um, and certainly we want you to be punished for the crime you committed. Um, and so this is how most of us view justice. Uh, that's maybe very blunt, and it's maybe very caricatured of justice. Obviously, it's not as simple and clear-cut as that, um, and there's people in the West who do great jobs, and there's people that do less good jobs. Um, But on the whole, this is kind of the core fundamentals of a lot of our justice is to punish someone and to exclude them, to take them away and to keep us safe, the the good people keep them safe from the bad people. Um, And it's all about labeling, right? I mean, even uh, we we even call people um, when they come out of prison, most of us end up calling them a criminal or they were a rapist or they're a murderer. You know, we still they if they paid their crime, if punishment was to pay their crime, we shouldn't still call them a murderer or whatever. We should call them a citizen, a, a human being. You know, like We should identify with them not on what they've done, but who they are now. Um, but that's not, again, it's, it's, it's very much, this is, it, it labels you, it casts you out, it puts you on the out. Um, what's interesting is while this again and again and again has been proven not to work, we seem to like really knuckle down on it we really like hammer down and, and the world continues to do this form of punishment 
Um, so you look at Uganda, like they just pass um, laws to uh, kill people who are gay. If you're outwardly gay, you will be put to death. And what's terrifying about that is it's Christians, um, specifically American Christians, influencing Ugandan Christians, that pushed for that bill to come about. Um, and so this is not uh, the, oh, the worldly view that excludes Christians. I think Christians are heavily ingrained in a worldly view of punishment for doing something, quote-unquote, wrong, as they would deem it. Um, what's interesting is there's certain countries around the world that do things slightly different. And, I, and, and I'm using very real-worldly examples because I think it shows something quite powerful. If you look at somewhere like Norway, um, that quite a few of the Scandinavian countries do prison uh, differently. Norway do not have a desire to punish a criminal. It's not in their code of ethics as far as the justice system. The justice system is to bring restoration to broken people. What they do is they see a criminal as a hurt and broken individual. And they have in turn hurt and broken other people or things. Like So they've done something wrong and we need to fix that. And maybe even they're not safe to be in society right now because they might continue to hurt and break people. But the issue is not like them in and of themselves, the issue is they've been hurt and they've been broken. And so the issue is, how do we heal them? How do we make them well? How do we restore them? And so the, the justice system in that country is restoration, not punishment. It's how do we bring something afresh into the situation to bring this person to life, to rehabilitate this person so they can come back into um, a normal day-to-day -day society and not be a hazard and not be someone that we cast out, not be someone we label as a criminal, not be someone that we don't want to associate with or we don't feel safe around, but instead someone that we go, wow, you've been through prison? You must be great. You must be really healthy. They go through daily counseling sessions. They go through group counseling sessions. They um, live together. They prepare their food together. I mean, the, I, I've seen pictures of Norwegian uh, prisons and this is fascinating to me and they're all in kitchens with like big massive like butcher knives cutting meat and like you know and you're like don't give prisoners knives these people kill people you know and it, but it's it's they believe in these people and they restore and they, they desire to see these people and so they empower they equip they tell them who they truly are they, re they reveal that and they pull it out and do you know what's fascinating about this Norway has one of the lowest repeat offending uh, uh, statistics in the whole world and it is tiny in comparison to that 80%. I can't remember exactly, so I won't make up a figure. Uh, but it is very small. I mean, like, almost no one in the world comes close very small. So the world has, like, done its system, and there have been people that have bucked the trend in the world and proven this system doesn't work. Punishment is not how you make things right. Punishment is not how you make people healthy and righteous and holy. Um, and actually, does punishment make it better? Like, if you kill someone and then you go to prison for 20 years, does that make the person alive? Does that make the people who lost that loved one better? Like, it's, it's a deeply um, vindicate... Uh, it's, 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 it's not a healthy place to be to want someone to suffer because you're suffering. Right? I mean, we could all say that. If, if you were hurt, the, the, and, and, it's, and we've all done it though, right? I mean, we've been hurt and we lash out and we hurt the other person. We all do it. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not a part of day-to-day -day life, but I'm not saying, I don't think any of us would look at that objectively and say that's a healthy way to respond. Um, and it's certainly not the Jesus way to respond, right? And so what I, I, I often wonder when I look at this stuff is, do we see in Jesus a model of justice be, being modeled, you know, does he model justice? And I think he models justice really, really clearly. 
And the model of justice he gives us is certainly not that first one. It's certainly not about punishment. It's certainly not about excluding. He doesn't exclude anyone. The only people you could maybe say he excludes are the ones that are excluding. He maybe, um, you could say, the Pharisees that are saying, we don't want you in the camp because you're not good enough. And he goes, well, actually, you're not good enough, right? I mean, so if in one sense, he could, you could maybe say he excludes one group that are excluding. But other than that, he is very inclusive. He wants the, the criminals and the um, sinners and the filthy, terrible, awful people as labeled by their culture. He wants them in. And he works with people to restore them, to bring about change. You know, you see people that come to him that are um, tax collectors swindling and stealing money. And just by having dinner with them, they're like, oh, my gosh, I want to change. I want to give my money instead of take money. I want to, you know, bless the world instead of be a burden to it and curse the world. Um, His justice is deeply restorative. And so if going back to what we talked about the first day, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God... Is it possible that we have, in our attempts to draw a picture of the invisible God, with maybe the pieces of the puzzle we had, is it possible we've inserted a worldview of punishment, a worldview of justice, onto a God who is not about punishment? I mean, John, in First John, doesn't he? He says, love has nothing to do with punishment. He says, love has nothing to do with fear because fear is to do with punishment. So we can say, love has nothing to do with punishment. And what's fascinating is someone that says, well, God is love, but he's also just. What's fascinating is their concept of just, what they're saying is, we want to see people punished. So what they're basically saying is, well, I am going to give you a bit-by-bit breakdown of the opposite of what First John is saying. <laughs> God is love, and in him is no punishment. They go, God is love, and he's punishment. God is love, and you can't take away his punishment. And I think, you know, this is understandable. I think this is understandable when we have a culture that needs to see people um, pay for what they do. There's, there's something about um, when people have hurt us, when people have wronged us, we, we want justice. We, we do want justice. But I think not all of us have had a healthy model of what could justice look like. Could it look like restoring that person? And, you know, I, I love, uh, I don't know if you ever see these things on, like, YouTube or Facebook or whatever, or wherever you're browsing. You see these videos of, like, you know, a family whose daughter was raped and killed by someone. And the guy's on death row. And they are the ones that are petitioning for him not to die. They're saying, get him off death row. We don't want him to die. You know, we want him, we've forgiven him. We don't want him to die. We want him to, you know, and, and then the guy can, like, gets saved. And it's always some sort of, like, epic story. I'm sure there's other ones that are in the middle of the spectrum somewhere. But... I love Christians that get, it's not about like, you killed someone, so now you should die. That's, that's an eye for an eye. It's certainly not turning the, te- the cheek, is it? And so, to me, when I start to think about this stuff, when I start to think that Jesus was a lot more in his justice about restoration, about making things right, about making things new, I mean, even saying those things, doesn't that scream the gospel? Doesn't that scream Jesus' message? I've come to make things right. I've come to make things new. I've come to restore. I've come to give liberty to those in prison. I've come to heal the sick. There's nothing in it that says, you know, anyone that's done wrong, I'm come to beat you up. Now there's a process, and he does talk about that. He says, hey, people that have really screwed up, there's going to be some stuff you're going to have to go through. But it doesn't seem to me that he's about punishing people. In fact, anything that people go through seems to be for the purpose of restoration. 
So if this is what Jesus looks like and his justice looks like, is it possible that God might need to change in our minds? Is it possible that we might need to recalibrate how God views things? We talked to the, on the first day about how God creates the world and in the world he knows there's going to be sin and yet he still goes ahead with it. And here's the thing, if you are a God who is motivated by justice that can't allow sin, that needs to punish sin, that needs to um, be separate from sin, that needs to be distant from sin, then I just don't see how you would go ahead with that plan. Like you would just make sure you created somewhere that wasn't sin, right? But God seems to still go ahead with a world that has fallen into sin. And for me, that says God's not worried about sin in a sense of uh, it being a big deal for him, it being a big problem for him. Instead, God seems to be, oh, that's fine. That's great. I'll overturn it. I'll overcome it. I'll come and restore the world. You, you see, John says, um, here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. He doesn't punish everyone in the world for their sins. He takes away the sins. 2 Corinthians um, 5 talks about how God in Jesus creates a new creation, a new, um, the, the world, the, the word is he He completely renews, the, he reconciles the cosmos to himself. Like, there's nothing reconciling about punishment. There's nothing reconciling about alienation. There's nothing reconciling about excluding. That doesn't sound like reconciliation to me. Reconciliation is bringing someone to you, not pushing them away from you. And that cosmos isn't sort of like, well, the three people that say a prayer on Sunday. It's a, no, it's like the cosmos, the, the, the galaxies, the universe. It is everything we have ever known or dreamed of. He brings to himself. He reconciles to himself. It's hard for me to... fit punishment into that model. It's hard for me to fit a justice system that excludes and pushes away into a God who forgives sin and draws in. And even if we look at what um, the Gospels and, and, and epistles and even some of the Old Testament says about sin, he says, like, you know, God will remember your sins no more. I've forgiven your sins. Before you even do them, he forgives your sins. It's kind of crazy. And I've removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. It's impossible for them to meet. That's how far your sins have been removed from me. I, I, I don't have any recollection of your sin. If Jesus on the cross took away the world's sin, and you look at that unbeliever, and you look at their sin, and you think they're going to be punished for that one day. What you're saying is Jesus didn't take away the world's sin. Right? In fact, a lot of um, Christianity, like we talked about, Jesus was punished for our sin. We have very, like, kind of um, blunt theological framework for that. Of God wanted to punish sin, and so he punishes Jesus instead. He, Jesus takes all the sin of the world on him and he punishes Jesus instead. But even in that, like even if you believe that, which which personally I don't, um, even if you believe that, well surely if God, Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself and God poured out his wrath and anger on Jesus 
how dare he pour out his wrath and anger on anyone? Because all it says is, like, Jesus took that punishment and that wrath for no reason. And you maybe have the Calvinists argue with that, and they would go, well, he only took the, the sins upon himself of those that were elected, those that were saved, those that he chose before the foundations of the earth. Um, and, yeah, fair enough if that's what you want to believe. Um, that is a whole other level for me of, like, I don't understand how you have a loving God who creates people and goes, yeah, but that one, I'm just creating just to burn in hell for eternity. Like, that doesn't work for me as a, a loving God. Um, so I'm left thinking, maybe we need to rethink what was God's relation to us before the cross. And maybe we need to rethink what was God's plan in the cross. And maybe even we need to think, what does it look like after the cross? You see, for me, sin is a problem. Like, sin is not good. No one's running around saying sin is great. But sin has never been God's problem. God's never had a problem with sin. People have had a problem with sin. People are the ones that sin, and people are the ones that distance themselves from God because of sin. If you look in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't bite some fruit and God ran away and hid going oh my gosh i can't look on sin they're so filthy and sinful what happened adam and eve bit the fruit and they ran away and hid they were ashamed they were like oh we can't let god see us and i think often we portray god as so holy so amazing so perfect he can't be in the presence of sin it's like have you met jesus like this perfect holy representation of god who did nothing but hang out with sin like God cannot look upon sin. It's like, what has he been looking on for eternity? Like, right from the get-go, right at the beginning. Oh, they sinned. Right. Now I've got nothing to look at, right? So what is it? Like, is it God sitting up in heaven going, all right, Gabriel, what's happening down there? <laughs> Covering up his eyes. He can't see because he can't look at sin. He's like, right, what's going on? Oh, no, they did that. Really? Ah. Maybe if you go and say this to them, right? I mean, like, do we honestly think that's what God's doing? He can't look upon sin? What a ridiculous concept. And the whole concept comes from one Bible verse, and it's completely ridiculous. Um, it comes from a Habakkuk, um, I think it's 2.13, and he says, maybe it's 1.13, um, he says, Oh God, you are so holy, so pure, that you cannot look upon sin. And you're like, wow, that's a pretty condemning Bible verse. That's like, boom, God cannot look on sin because he's so holy, so pure. Uh, half a sentence. Next half of the sentence. So God, why do you? Why do you look upon these sinful people? Why do you bless these sinful people? Why do you treat them with blessings just as much as the righteous? This is Habakkuk not making a theological treatise here. This is Habakkuk throwing a temper tantrum like only a minor prophet can. Major prophets are pretty good at throwing temper tantrums as well. Habakkuk's going, God, you're holy, you're pure. How on earth are you treating these sinful people nicely? This is making me mad because I'm a good, perfect, holy boy, right? This is Habakkuk going, I deserve better than them because I'm good and they're bad. And God going, I'm blessing them all. And somehow we've cut apart his statement and made it into an entire theological concept that God can't look on sin. Absolute insanity. God has never had a problem being around sin. You look through the Old Testament, he's there the whole time. He keeps coming into the midst of sin to help Israel and restore them and to bring them back out of sin. 
Israel suffered the consequences of sin. See, for so long we taught that sin separates you from God. But according to the scriptures, nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. He's come and he's made his home in you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Angels, demons, this, that, 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 this. There's nothing that can separate you. And yet, I think there's one thing that can separate us in kind. In that our minds can choose to separate ourselves from God. He's still there. He's still with us. But we can feel alone. We can feel distant. We can feel apart from him. And so, in a sense, sin might separate us from God. But it certainly doesn't separate God from us. God doesn't go anywhere. We do. And the whole time God's still there with us going, oh my gosh, I wish they would open their eyes. I wish they would see that I'm still here. I wish they would see that in the midst of their sin, instead of running, I'd love to help them. Like Instead of pushing me away, I'd love to be there and restore them and help them. And I think we just have this ingrained in us that God is a punisher. God wants to distance sinful people. God wants to push away that which is impure. God wants a pure camp and an impure camp. He wants a holy group and an unholy group. He wants the righteous and the unrighteous. And God is there in the midst of unrighteousness just as much as he is in the midst of the righteous. We'll get to uh, hell on the next topic in the next session. But any passage that seems to talk about hell... God isn't apart from it. In fact, God is hell in many of the passages. The fire of God, uh, the fire uh, of uh, hell proceed from God. He's the one pouring fire out. He's there right in the midst of it. You see, God doesn't go anywhere. God doesn't leave us. God doesn't run. We run. We close our eyes. We distance ourselves from God. So if that's the case, if God has always been for us, if always, God has always loved us, if God has always been with us, if God has always uh, uh, been on our sides, then why did Jesus have to come and die? It's a big question, right? And I think it's, a, it's too big a question to give a simple answer to. And I, I'm not even going to begin to do you the disservice of pretending there's a simple, clear-cut answer, which I think is what most of the church has done has gone, oh, it's simple, you were awful, God was mad, so God killed Jesus instead, and now everything's fine. Um, again, weird justice, right? Like, if if someone killed, um, uh, let's say um, someone kills uh, Marek's uh, mom, all right? And you're like, I want justice, I want, I want justice to be served, I want that person to be in prison or I want them to die or whatever imagine I stepped in and says don't worry Mark I'll kill my son and that will make it fine and then they can go off free you'd be like no that doesn't make anything better that's that's, that's completely irrelevant now you've just killed an innocent person that person hasn't changed or been bettered and I don't feel any vindication for my my bloodlust of like I want someone to pay because they hurt my mom but the whole system is a bit bizarre actually if we think about it it's certainly not just But I don't think when Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished by the Father. In fact, when we look at the scriptures, it's very clear that the Father God was in Jesus on the cross. 
again, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Jesus on the cross, reconciling the whole world to himself. So we have a picture of, like, it's, it's painted again and again and again, and we just had Easter, so it's, it's um, often clear in our minds because we hear it again and again. You will have heard this in church, hopefully. Um, <laughs> that Jesus is on the cross and God's pouring out his wrath, but he's turned his back. He can't even look because Jesus is so filthy and rotten and sinful, right? The father turns his face away. We've got, a, um, a, is it Matt Redman or someone sings a song that, about that and you're just like, that, that's, that's our theology. God can't look on sin. Jesus becomes this awful, terrible, filthy, rotten sinner in our place and he pours out his wrath. He can't, he's so mad he can't even look. Luckily he's good aim, you know, like he's God so he wouldn't miss, you know, but he's turned his face and he's just pouring out his wrath and sin and punishment. But that isn't biblical either. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that at least not without some legwork. Uh, I mean, we often use the passage, um, have you ever noticed in the, in the Gospels, um, it's all written in Greek, um, and then you've got this r- random phrase in the middle in Aramaic. It's quite funny, right? And so it's just right there, boom. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're like, well, did they forget to like translate that to Greek? Or like, you know, did Google Translate break when they were working on that? Or But it's weird, right? They write all this book in Greek and then they stop and they write a phrase in Aramaic and then they translate it in Greek and then they continue in Greek and you're like like what's going on why would you do that I think it's actually quite important that we recognize that they did that see on the cross Jesus cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me and this validates our theology so much right Jesus is on the cross Jesus is um, taking the sins of the world upon himself and God is out of here God is gone because I am not going to be anywhere near sin and all of a sudden Jesus is on his own God without God but that's not at all what happens see if you look at what's happening here if you read that phrase my God my God why have you forsaken me it's a direct quote it's a quote of Psalm 22 and so if you actually look at how the Psalms were remembered um, what they used to do is they would sing the psalms they're songs so it's a good start but it's, it's like you know when you sing songs um, there's something about if you sing a first couple of lines of a song it gets stuck in people's heads I love to do this to Tilly it really annoys her like I'll pick a really bad song like you know like the worst crappy like you know a song from like the 70s it wasn't even a hit you know but everyone kind of knows you start singing that and then boom stuck in your head for the whole day it's like really frustrating and annoying isn't it that's me loving Phil um but, you know, if I was to go like, Lord, I give you my heart, you're immediately thinking, I give you my soul, I live for you. Right? And we get f- pulled back to the 90s. Um, and a, a great song, like, uh, that's fine. But I'm like, boom. It's, it's, but that's, we've not heard that song for like a decade. And it's in our heads, just from the first line. Um, <laughs> you've got taking back, dance, dance in a, a stasis. Uh, yeah. It's going to another level. Um and this is what would happen with the psalms, though, right? I mean, they sing songs, and they, this is how they would remember the psalms, this is how they would repeat the songs, they'd sing them. Um, and so what's interesting is, in the same way that if I sing the first line of a Christian song, we quickly go, oh, wow, yeah, 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 that's exactly what it is. You know, I've heard a thousand, and you go, oh, yeah, it's good, good father. You know, you immediately, and you can probably say all the lines of that song if you actually sat down and thought about it, because we sing it all the time. But if I was to go, what are... Uh, if I was to say the first line of the sermon you heard on Sunday, would you be able to tell me the second line? Would you be able to keep going and give me the whole sermon? Probably not, right? Or if I read uh, uh, a, a verse in, in the Bible um, and just read out one verse, would you be able to keep going? Would you be like, oh yeah, that reminds me and I keep reading? Probably not, right? 
And the truth is, we remember songs so much better. There's something about music that engages with us. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he gives you the first line of a song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's maybe time to perk our ears up and go, huh, what's happening? Because every Jew that's around feeling vindicated, feeling excited about the fact that this terrible, lying, uh, false messiah, uh, person that's uh, muddying the name of God, they're there and they know their scriptures, they know their, their Hebrew, they know their God, they know their Psalms, because they're the holy ones that want to kill anyone that goes against what they believe. And so he goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately in their head, they're playing Psalm 24. But what's interesting with Psalm 24 is... It's the messianic psalm. It goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My enemies have surrounded me. All my friends have deserted me. They've given me um, a sponge with vinegar on it to drink. They have pierced my side. They've pierced my hands, my feet, and nailed me to a tree. They, um, they've divided my robe. They've, uh, they've uh, cast lots for my garments. 22. 22, yeah. What did I say? You said 22 first, then you said 22. Oh, it's definitely 22. Sorry. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's all this, you know, it's, it's, it, can you imagine you're a good Jewish boy or girl and you're looking at this guy on the cross and he goes, uh, Psalm 22, everyone, just turn back and read through it. And you're reading it and it's like, they've divided my clothes, uh, they, you know, they've divided my garments. You're looking over and the Roman centurions are de- dividing the garments. And it's like, they're casting lots for my robe. And you're like, oh, okay. And they're offering me wine skin on, on a sponge. Uh, okay. They're, they're pierced my sides. Uh, this is like, can you imagine what you'd be thinking? You'd be like, did we just kill God? Right? Like, there's a moment where you're like, uh oh. Now, it's not to say that Jesus didn't feel forsaken. I'm not saying that that. But what I'm saying is it's a good idea to read through Psalm 22 because in the middle of Psalm 22, what happens? He says, But you, my God, do not despise me, and you have not turned your back on me. And then he goes on and starts boasting about how good God is and how great God is and how he's going to turn this terrible situation around to an amazing, wonderful, incredible victory. And then he ends Psalm 22. Do you know how it ends? It is finished. And so what's amazing about Jesus on the cross is he opens with Psalm 22 and he finishes with Psalm 22. He, and he's basically saying, hey guys, you just watched Psalm 22 happen. And so... What did happen when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For me, like, I think it's much more likely that as Jesus takes the sin of the world upon himself, that's, there's no doubt about that's what happens on the cross. It's very clear about that. He takes the sin of the world upon himself. He and his humanity experiences what we as humanity experience in the midst of sin. When we sin, we feel distance from God. We feel far from God. We feel not good enough for God. We feel, you know, that God's gone somewhere. So can you imagine when you took all of sin that's ever been and ever will be upon yourself? You can imagine that, you know, for a little while, Jesus was like, whoa. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes on the full range of what it was to be sinful. He takes on the full range of what it was to be lost in our sin as humans. And so he feels completely lost in sin. But if we read through Psalm 22, we can read through almost the mind of Jesus, you know, what he's going through. And in the midst of that, what does he say? He says, but God, you don't despise me. You've not turned your back on me. You won't fail me. You will vindicate me. You will raise me up. You know, there's all this amazing language that speaks of what Jesus is going through on the cross as he overcomes that sin. 
And so for me, I think the cross is a lot less about God pouring out punishment and it's a lot more about God overcoming sin. On the cross, God gathers sin to himself and eradicates it. He destroys it. There's plenty of different views of um, the atonement. There's there's different uh, views. You might have moral atonement. You might have mimetic atonement. You might have uh, uh, penal substitution, which is what we most commonly believe in the in the in the church. Which is what I was talking about. You might have Christus Victor, which is that Jesus overcomes sin rather than and God pours out His wrath on sin in the sense that He destroys sin. He He pours out wrath on sin. But here's the thing: with God pouring out wrath on sin, is that unloving i would say that's the most beautiful expression of love because god's wrath is not against you god's wrath is against that which is hurting you his anger is towards the sin not you and so he removes sin from you he puts it in a safe place upon himself and he destroys it he eradicates it he pours out every element of anger and wrath and and just frustration upon what that sin has done to people and what it can do to people and destroys it in one fell swoop to the point where he can say you are no longer a sinner you are no longer a slave to sin you are no longer lost into sin you are now righteous. You are now the righteous of Christ. You are now free to be who you have always been. So then the question when we do that is, it kind of leads to, well, if he did that, if he eradicated sin, if it wasn't an individual transaction of like, okay, everyone in the room, put your hand up if you want your sin to go on Jesus and then he'll destroy it. And if you don't put your hand up, you're going straight to hell and you're going to, suffer for the rest of life and you'll be a sinner your whole life like if it wasn't that if it was he gathered all sin to himself there's a few questions that that opens up right well why do we still sin um that's a great question we talked a bit about that yesterday didn't we though with like you know if we put our belief in us our flesh if we choose to live apart from god it's, it's easy for us to to feed from that wrong tree the good and evil it's easy for us to go right back to the garden and do what adam and eve did we feed from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, and that's not what produces good fruit. That's, that produces sin and ultimately death, whereas feeding from the tree of life produces righteousness and godliness. And so I think most of that is more of a choice. But the bigger question that people really struggle with is if all sin has been dealt with and everyone's suddenly righteous, are you saying everyone's saved? And I think that's a big, big question. And so, you know, we looked at that when Romans 5, remember, where through Adam all became sin. But through Jesus, all have been made righteous. It's very like universal language. It's very inclusive language. It's very um, far and wide. You know, we, we, we're okay with everyone becoming sin through Adam, which is kind of unfair because no one did anything apart from Adam um, or Adam and Eve. Um, but we're not okay with everyone becoming righteous through Jesus because we quite like a, a nice clean cut choice. We like a nice clean cut church with good, nice, simple people that wear a hat and a suit. Um, but we don't like the you would include that drug dealer, that you would include that prostitute, that you would include my son who's not got his life together, that you would include whoever it might be, right? We all have people out there that we go, well, obviously they're not in. And we don't like that God says, I've made all righteous in the same way that Adam made all sinful. But I don't think it's um, necessarily as clear cut as that. You see, Salvation is a complex phrase anyway in and of itself. I mean, 
there's plenty of ways that salvation is used throughout the New Testament that are pretty sketchy, like really sketchy if you actually look at them. Um, just in Jesus' ministry, he declares multiple people saved for some really weird things. Like the weirdest example I can think of is one day Jesus is preaching in a house and all of a sudden bits start falling down from the roof and he looks up and there's people digging a hole in the roof. And you think, man, I would never host Jesus. Um, and they lower, these guys, four guys, lower down a mattress down to the ground and then they, I guess, come down themselves and he heals this guy. And he says, my friend, you have been saved because of your friend's faith. Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine you go to church, right? And you bring along your um, your friend who's, a, I don't know, a, a crack addict, prostitute, who, uh, I'm trying to think of bad things that Christians really don't like. Uh, I don't know, whatever. Who's also a Muslim, right? I mean, there you go. I mean, could you... Could you think of anything worse in a Christian church? And then, so you bring your friends along, and they come into the church, and the and the pastor walks up to them and goes, "Your friend's faith has saved you. It just declares them safe. They've not prayed a prayer. They've not worshipped God. They've not listened to the message yet. They just showed up. And because you brought them, the pastor goes, Ah, because your your friend brought you, you're saved. Like that's like the most controversial thing that could ever happen in church. That pastor would be fired on the spot." Like they wouldn't even have like an inquisition witch hunt that we witch, witch hunt that we love to do in church. They would just be like, "You're out of here, mate." Um, so like, there's there's lots of different ways that uh, salvation is used in the New Testament, and it's not always I said a like, nice little prayer, you know, Jesus come into my heart. In fact, it's never that. <laughs> it's never there in the New Testament. And so there's many different ways that the word salvation is used. And so when people say, well, "Are you saying all people are saved?" and I would say, "Well, saved from what?" What are you talking about? Safe from pain? Safe from suffering? Safe from sin? Safe from hell? What, what are you talking about? What are you bringing to the table that you think salvation means? Do you think sin, uh, salvation means I'm free from poverty? Do you think it means I'm free from the anger of God? Do you think it means I'm free from uh, pain and suffering? What do you think salvation means? Because that's more telling than what I can tell you. Because I can't give you an answer of yes, they're saved or no, they're saved. Because until you tell me what you mean, I can't tell you. But if the question is, are they saved from sin? Yeah, they are. There's no one out there that isn't saved from sin. He took away the sin of the world. Sin is not an issue for any person on this planet in relation to their relationship with God. It might be an issue for them in relation to how well they get on with their family, right? If you're stealing from your parents and doing drugs, that's probably going to re- have an issue in how you, well you get on at the family reunion, you know? And if you um, kill someone, it's probably going to have an issue for your day-to-day life. Probably going to end up in prison. Um, so yeah, sin has it, it has ramifications, but you are saved from sin. There's, there's no consequence from sin as far as you and God. So is Jesus saved everyone? Well, in that sense, Sure. So are you saying that everyone is going to heaven then? Well, not necessarily. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying everyone's safe from their sin. And I think this is the thing that um, is so telling. Christians expose themselves so easily um, in a good way. Um, (laughs) what, What are they saying here? They're saying, I'm more fixated with what people do 
than who people know. I care more about is that person doing right or doing bad than do they know Jesus. I care more about what is the fruit of their life than which vine are they in. And of course these things are quite linked. But I care more about focusing on the works than the faith. That's what they're saying. Because they've hinged salvation on what are they doing and have they been forgiven for what they're doing. And I just don't think that's what God works around. I don't think God operates around what are you doing and how well are you doing it. And you know, I, I just don't really see that particularly well in the New Testament. I don't see it in Jesus and, and how he, he does life. Um, and absolutely, they, they, uh, they say, hey, it's a really good idea to live a healthy whole life. And as a Christian, we should be looking like the best people on the planet, of course. But it's not a, if you're not doing that, you're not a Christian. If you're, you know, like, it's, it's a, let's focus on the root, let's focus on the vine, let's focus on where we're grafted in, and let's trust that good fruit is going to be produced. Robert Capone said something quite interesting. A great theologian um, who died recently, uh, he was a, uh, a priest in New York, and he said, heaven and hell are full of forgiven sinners. And that's something to think about. You see, we think forgiveness is what gets you into hell or heaven. But apparently it's not. Well, according to Robert Capone at least. (laughs) But his argument would be, well, no, sin has been dealt with. Everyone has been forgiven of their sin. That's not the issue. So if he's saying that heaven and hell are full of forgiven sinners, then heaven and hell must be about something else. And I think, for me, that opens up the gospel to be about what it's really about. It opens up the gospel to be, do you know Jesus? You know, when Jesus was asked, how can we have eternal life? He says, this is eternal life, that you know me and you know my Father. Not that you get your act together. Not that you say a prayer. Not that you're a part of the right church or denomination. He says that you know me and you know my father. There's a... a, a, C.S. Lewis, I love the guy. Like, I really love him. But I think if most people read what he wrote, they wouldn't love him as much. Um, (laughs) We love love the quotes here and there, but if we actually read deeply, it's like, ooh, this guy was pretty controversial. He wrote a book called The Last Battle. There's a series um, called Narnia. You might have seen some of the movies, or maybe you read them as a kid. The last book is so controversial you can't turn a page without it getting more and more controversial but basically to give you a quick summary is the world ends and everyone um, in the midst of this uh, great battle the world ends and people are in turmoil and, and violence and all sorts of stuff the world ends and people get sucked up to heaven and they meet this character Aslan who is Jesus Aslan represents God and Jesus um, and so the characters that have been like following Aslan the entire series and they've loved God and they've trusted in him, they're having a conversation with him and it's great and obviously they're here because they followed him. They're his trusty um, followers. And then there's some other stuff going on and we'll talk about that in the, the, the hell passage. There's some interesting stuff going on there of people that didn't believe in Aslan were there. They just weren't having a great time. Um, but then there was this one guy. And so in the series of Narnia, there's... Um, 
a group of people that aren't the Narnians. Narnians are basically the kind of the West, the Christianized countries, and most of them follow Jesus. Most of them follow Aslan. Um, but there's another group of the the uh, another country, another set of countries. I think it's called the Talmarians. Is that right? Talmarians. These guys they followed Tash and. GCS list is not really subtle, to be honest with you. So you've got the Christians and the Christian nations, the Muslims and the Muslim nations. That's basically what he's saying, right? And even in the way he writes it, like they're dark skinned, some of them wear turban, you know, it's just like they cover their heads and the women cover their face. I mean, like, it's, it's very like these are the Muslims. Um, but what's interesting at the end is when they're in this place, this heaven, and all these, these Christians are there, and all these Christians that weren't very good Christians because they didn't believe in Jesus anymore, they were there, they were just not having a great time in the midst of it there's a a, a soldier i believe and he was a talmarian tamarine whatever it is um he was there and he's like freaking out and he, he, he he's talking to aslan jesus and he says what the heck am i doing here he's like you're god he's like i was told my whole life that tash was god and i have spent my whole life worshiping tash and you're God. And he's freaking out because he's like, this is not going to go well for me, right? Because you've been worshipping the wrong God your whole life. Uh-oh, right? Especially if your God is like Tash, right? If Aslan's anything like Tash, not a good day to be, uh, have been found worshipping the wrong God. And Aslan says something so profound that if most Christians read it, they would like have crucified uh, C.S. Lewis. Luckily, he became more famous when he was dead. So, um, <laughs> he says, he says, my son, you may have worshipped Tash by name, but everything you did unto him, you did unto me, because you understood that Tash had to be like me. You understood that if there was a God, he had to be good. He had to be loving. He had to be kind. He had to be compassionate. He had to be full of peace. He had to be full of joy. So you did all of those things, and you worshipped by name, Tash, but everything you did unto Tash, you did unto me. It's fascinating to me. Super controversial, right? But what's the point? The point is, it's about relationship. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not about getting to church. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about whatever. It's about, do I have relationship with Jesus? And I don't doubt in any shape or form that there's people around the world that have never heard the name Jesus who are in relationship with Jesus. I have no doubt about it. Like, I've heard some crazy testimonies, and some of them are like, oh, I don't know if that's an old wives' tale that just floats around church, or if it's not. But, like, you know, you hear things about, oh, we went into this tribal community that had never been reached, and they, the first time they even saw a white person, and they were all worshipping this God who died on a cross. And, like, you know, and it's, I don't know if that's true or not, but you hear stories like that sort of thing. What I do know is um, when I was in the Middle East, I met this, um, this guy who had had this incredible encounter where Jesus came into his room. And he says, Jesus um, entered his room. He wore this white robe. Um, and he says, I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm your prophet. Because to the Muslims, that's one of their prophets. It's the greatest prophet apart from Muhammad. It's Jesus. So they really revere Jesus and they love Jesus and they try and follow his words. Um, and so Jesus comes to me and says, I want to know, you to know I'm not just your prophet. I'm your savior. And so he has this profound conversation with Jesus and experience and gets saved. Um, and Jesus says, he says, well, what do I do now? And Jesus says, well, go back to your mosque, pray five times a day, wash your hands, wash your feet, love your neighbor as you love yourself and love me and be loved by me. He doesn't say go find a church. He doesn't say go profess your Christian and get your head chopped off or get put in prison. He says, 
just keep doing what you're doing, but love me instead. When you go to the mosque, pray to me. When you love other people, know that you're doing it unto me. And I'm like, that hurts my head, right? Because I'm like in my Christian mode of like, well, he should start going to a church or he should start doing this or he should start doing that. Here's a funny story as well. Um, He told me, he showed me in this newspaper. um, He opened up a newspaper and he says, look at this. And it was this advertisement. And I I don't know what language it was in. Was it maybe Farsi or I don't know what it would be. But um, he shows me this advertisement. And in, and on it is this picture of this guy with like long hair, beard, white robe, which is kind of funny because it's kind of like in my head that's a stereotypical Western version of Jesus, right? Um, but anyway, it's that sort of picture, and in it is like these, these words in Farsi, and it's like a, a number to call and things like that. And it says, "If this man comes to you in your a dream and calls himself Jesus, call this number or talk to your man immediately." And you're like, "That's so funny!" And he's like, "It's happening everywhere. People are getting converted." everywhere and we just don't know it because there's there's no benefit to them just going and getting killed it's much better that they would become part of the community and, and allow who they are and who jesus is in them to start affecting and, and changing the community and maybe at a certain point things change and maybe there's more openness to it and maybe some of these people become high up in government or whatever it is you know like or maybe it's a, a sultan that gets transformed and he changes the rules of the country or you know but he's like you have no idea how many christians are in this nation um and so what am I saying? It's a good question because that was quite a tangent. What I'm saying is, I don't think salvation is about what's right and wrong, about who's sinning, who's not. What I think salvation is about is God has done absolutely everything to make sure that you have the opportunity to know he is with you. He has always been with you. He has always been for you. And there's nothing that needs to hold you back. And the only thing that can still hold you back is in here. God is standing there going, I want relationship with you. And you have the opportunity to go, okay, or nah, I'm good. And that's the only difference. That's the only thing that dictates what eternity looks like. That's the only thing that dictates um, how you're going to relate to God um, for eternity, whatever that looks like. And we'll talk about it in the next session. Um, Let's break there. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.